to Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to ask you to look back at verse 9. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you would stand for me for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the hearts to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. It's my pleasure and joy this morning and in a moment to have Pastor Amos, who needs no introduction to you all, the senior pastor at New Life Church. Um, there are many things I love about Pastor Amos. One of the things I love about Pastor Amos is he is very willing to ask the hard questions the awkward questions, not only of members, but also pastors. And we had an opportunity this past week and Tuesday afternoon with the Lighthouse Pastors just to hang out with Pastor Amos for an afternoon. And uh, perhaps it's the physician in me and that like-mindedness of men who are willing to ask awkward and hard questions. But you know, as we think of our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior in love was unrelenting in asking the disciples, the hard questions, and he did so out of love. And it's one of the ways and one of the many ways in which Pastor Amos has been just a faithful friend, 
not only to me, but the pastors of Lighthouse Bible Church in many hard spots and difficult situations when others had abandoned us, Pastor Amos was a faithful, faithful friend. And he is because of his faithfulness to Christ. And that's something that I've grown to admire with Pastor Amos. Uh, an ongoing and diligent and steadfast faithfulness to Christ and his word, which I have to tell you, even among pastors, sometimes is a rare thing. So as he comes to bring the word, please, I want you to soften your hearts and prepare them to receive from him as you would the Apostle Paul, as you would for anybody, myself, or anyone else, because it's going to be my joy this morning to sit under his teaching and learn from him, as I have much to learn from him. And I'm so thankful that we all have the opportunity to hear God's word at the end of the day, regardless of who it is who fills the pulpit, we are here to hear the voice of Christ. Pastor Amos, would you come and bring us the word? Thank you so much, Pastor Mark, for that gracious introduction. The conversation this past Tuesday that he was referring to was where, one, I uh, felt very compelled to ask him and the other Lighthouse pastors, and I just said to them, okay, guys, I apologize, but I'm going to ask three awkward questions right now. And whenever I say that, usually most people will look at me with wide eyes, and I can see the white in their eyes and the fear at what they anticipate I might ask, but I love how the Lighthouse pastors are not like that at all. They did not bat an eye. They took my awkward questions, answered them straightforwardly, and really invested in me, and I really, really appreciate that. I do feel compelled to just say how much I appreciate two things uh, that come to mind right now, and one would just be your church. Lighthouse Bible Church, as I often say, has been such a great example here in the Bay Area to younger church plants like New Life. You might recall that New Life was planted, I believe, a good two or two and a half years after Lighthouse was. And so we've always been very grateful that there's been this example of faithfulness already here in the Bay Area, uh, many of the footsteps of which we were able to walk in. The second thing I'm so grateful for, of course, is your pastor. Pastor Mark has definitely been such a precious friend to me ever since he came up here to the Bay Area. And so I'm so grateful that you have godly leadership such as him and your elders. One day, many years ago, I was talking to one of my cousins who we'll call Kelly. Kelly had become a Christian just a couple years prior to that conversation, and she voiced to me that she found the Christian life incredibly difficult to live out. She said to me, as a Christian, there are so many things I'm supposed to do that I just don't want to do. And there are many things that I do that I know I'm not supposed to do. It's really hard, quite honestly. Life was so much easier before I became a Christian. The very next day, I was meeting with one of my friends, and this friend of mine had similarly become a Christian just a couple years prior, almost around the same time my cousin Kelly had become a Christian. And to my surprise, my friend said, the Christian life is so easy. It's so much easier than my life before I became a Christian. I wouldn't go back to that even if you offered me $10 million to do so. I am never going back to that again. This surprised me because this particular friend of mine had suffered so much for becoming a Christian. When he became a Christian, his entire family, all of his extended family, all rejected him and his newfound faith. And pretty much all of his friends were now shunning him entirely, specifically because he had become a Christian. 
This contrast in my cousin and my friend made me wonder, how is it that the Christian life can be so hard for one person and yet so easy for another person? Why the difference in their subjective experience? Ever since that time, uh, with some regularity, I've examined and studied this issue. Whenever I meet people, I'm always very keenly interested to find out whether or not they find the Christian life to be easy or difficult. And this is relevant not just to my observation of other people, but also to myself because I can definitely acknowledge that at different points of my life, I've found the Christian life either easy or difficult to live out. If you reflect a bit on this question, you might quickly be tempted to assume that the answer has to do with your circumstances. You might think, for example, that those who have very difficult circumstances would predictably find the Christian life very difficult to endure. If you're observant, though, and open-minded, you quickly find out that this just isn't the case. Whether someone experiences the Christian life as easy or difficult seems to have nothing at all to do with their circumstances. I've seen many examples, for example, of Christians who are in the best and most comfortable of circumstances, and yet who lament how difficult and tiresome they find their life to be. And in contrast, I believe similar to a lot of you, I've also met many Christians in the absolute worst of circumstances, month after month after month, who yet rejoice about how wonderful they find their life to be. How can this be? Thus far, I have been using this phrase, the Christian life, but I haven't yet defined it for you. By this phrase, the Christian life, what I'm referring to is how a Christian is supposed to live according to the Bible. If you're a Christian, you're well aware that the Christian life is addressed by the Bible and that the Bible has a whole lot to say about how you are supposed to live. Well, do you find that kind of life easy? Or do you find it difficult? And why is that? Over the years, I've come to understand that so much of how you experience the Christian life has to do with the basic assumptions that you hold regarding God, yourself, and your life. If you hold to a basic and specific set of assumptions, Jesus actually guarantees that you will find the Christian life easy. If, however, you hold to a different set of assumptions, you're essentially condemned to a miserable existence in which you will never know the joy and freedom that God intends for you to experience. Today, you're going to see three basic assumptions for Christian living. Three basic assumptions for Christian living. And you want to hear and internalize these assumptions so that you can be guaranteed a Christian life of joy, fulfillment, and blessing rather than be condemned to an existence of frustration, guilt, and endless emptiness. Before we dive into our first of three texts this morning, I want to acknowledge that for the vast majority of my sermon today, I am assuming that you have already received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm assuming essentially that you are a Christian. If that isn't true of you, though, then clearly what you need to do is to receive Christ as Savior. That means acknowledging that you're a sinner, helpless to save yourself, and that you need a qualified Savior. 
Christ and Christ alone is that qualified Savior. He died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sins. And if you receive him as Savior, you can be reconciled to God in harmonious relationship and anticipate spending eternity with him in heaven. Turn with me now, though, to 1 Peter chapter 1 for our first basic assumption for Christian living. We're looking at verses 13 through 16. I'm reading personally from the New American Standard, since that's what we use over at New Life. We're not quite cool enough at our church for the English Standard Version yet, but maybe one day. Here in this passage, the Apostle Peter says in verses 13 through 16, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you look at the prior context of this passage, you'll notice that Peter has been discussing salvation, the gospel, and especially your eternal future. What follows now in this passage are the implications of those realities, which is why Peter starts this off with that word, therefore. Because of your salvation, because of the gospel, because of your eternal future in heaven with Christ, there are several consequences for your life today. For example... Peter says here in verse 13 that you're to prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Christ returns one day in the future. Our focus right now, though, is on verses 14 through 16. And this is a command to holiness. The command is right there in the middle of verse 15. Be holy yourselves. This brings you to the first basic assumption for the Christian life, and that is holiness. Holiness. For several reasons, this word holiness is a bit intimidating. One reason would definitely be that it is rarely ever used in normal day-to-day English. And so it always feels like this slightly foreign concept. This word is rarely used even in a typical church context because in an effort to be as relatable, approachable, and attractive as possible to the world... Churches oftentimes will try to stay as much as possible within the vocabulary and concerns of the world, and that definitely does not include holiness. Let's put some meat on this concept of holiness. This passage provides plenty. For example, holiness means obedience. Holiness means obedience. Peter begins verse 14 here with this phrase, as obedient children. He simply assumes that you understand that there is no such thing as a Christian who's holy and yet whose life and pattern and trajectory are a heart of disobedience. Holiness also means separation. Holiness means separation. Peter continues here and he says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. What were you like before you became a Christian? Your pattern of mind heart and behavior today should be substantially different from that before you became a christian you were probably much more similar to the world in romans 12 paul says do not be conformed to the world 
Holiness means separation from both your former lusts and also the ways of the present world. Next, holiness means godliness. It means godliness. In verse 15, Peter says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. And in verse 17, God himself says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God is the definition and standard of holiness. He's the reason for holiness. You aren't supposed to aim at just a little pinch of holiness or an arbitrary holiness that you invent yourself. You're supposed to aim at the holiness of God himself. And this means that you should regularly ask regarding various options and situations in life, is this consistent with the holiness of God himself? Lastly, holiness means comprehensiveness. It means comprehensiveness. Peter says, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That word all, of course, means all. There is no part of your life that is exempt from Christian holiness. You are to be holy at work. You are to be holy when you come home from work. You are to be holy when you're online. You are to be holy when you're speaking with other people. Make sure you notice another word here in connection with holiness, and that's the word behavior there in verse 15. Holiness is to characterize every area of your life, including your mind and heart, but especially also your behavior. This entire concept of holiness, as I mentioned, is a fairly foreign and offensive concept in churches today. To understand why, you do have to know some modern church history. To paint in admittedly broad strokes, heading into the end of the 19th century, there were two branches of Christianity throughout the world and especially in the United States. These two branches were known as modernism and fundamentalism. Modernists were the liberals. They rejected virtually everything about the Bible. Everything about biblical Christianity, such as the inspiration of the Bible, the necessity for Christ for salvation, the miracles of the Bible, including the virgin birth of Christ, the sinfulness of man, and the future physical return of Christ to this world. The liberals rejected all of that. Once you reject all of that, you really don't have any unique message left to preach to this world. The modernists also rejected any concept of holiness, and that would definitely make sense because if you're going to reject the beliefs and theology of the Bible instead, embrace the beliefs and theology of the world, you're probably not going to advocate that you live differently from the world. In contrast, fundamentalists maintained all of those biblical distinctives. Fundamentalists embraced and proclaimed the inspiration of the Bible, the necessity of Christ for salvation, the miracles of the Bible, and so forth. Because of the fundamentalist belief in the Bible and in passages like the one we just read, they believed in the necessity of personal holiness for Christian living. They taught that you're to live in a way that is entirely distinct from how the world lives. And so for several decades, there was this deep and persistent and wide divide between the modernists and fundamentalists. Then in the 1950s, a man named Billy Graham began offering a third path which is now called neo-evangelicalism, or evangelicalism for short. Graham wanted to secretly and personally maintain fundamentalist beliefs, 
but he also wanted to do whatever it took to collaborate with modernists and liberals to increase the impact and range of his ministry. This new evangelical movement took off like wildfire, and pretty soon evangelicalism was known for believing in the Bible in terms of very basic doctrine, things like the gospel and the deity of Christ and so forth, but looking very much like the world, oftentimes just like the world in terms of lifestyle and behavior. In fact, this even became a point of pride for the evangelicals. There was this sense of, look how well we can relate to the world and how comfortable the world is with us, even though we're Christians. Ever since Graham, there has been this sort of divide between fundamentalists and evangelicals. In terms of behavior, fundamentalists have emphasized holiness and are often asking, how can we be more different from the world? In contrast, evangelicals have de-emphasized holiness and are often now asking, how can we be more similar to the world? How can we make them feel more comfortable? How can we make our church more attractive to the unregenerate? In terms of numbers, evangelicals definitely won the day. There are far more evangelicals today in the United States than there are fundamentalists. Even if you've been a Christian for a long, long time, many of you have probably never met a real and thorough and complete fundamentalist. This history is in part why the idea of holiness is completely foreign and even offensive to the average Christian today. A hallmark of evangelical thinking is this idea that the gospel is supposed to transform your heart. You have Jesus in your heart now, after all. But that it is not really supposed to transform your behavior. At least not in any real and practical ways. That would be weird. And you don't want to be a weirdo, is how the thinking goes. At this time, some of you are probably beginning to understand perhaps some of the interactions you've had with others in the past. Whether here at church or with other Christians in other churches or in your past, in your family, or among your relatives, your friends, or elsewhere, or wherever. Perhaps, at some point, you've engaged in this dangerous activity of reading the Bible, came across passages like the one that you're looking at right now in First Peter, observed the worldly behavior and lifestyle of a self-identifying Christian, and then asked that Christian... Why he or she does X, Y, or Z? And then you perhaps receive the response like, Goodness, don't be such a weirdo. Let's not be legalistic about this stuff. Don't be a fundy. Or something like that. Or perhaps you read a passage in the Bible and decided that you yourself needed to change some aspect of your life and behavior. And then, in obedience to that, you made that change. And then another Christian observed you making that change in your life and expressed concern that you were being weird or legalistic. The question comes down to whether the Bible is actually supposed to affect only your heart or whether it's actually supposed to transform your behavior. In response to that, God says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. A few months ago, I was having some internet troubles at home. And so I called AT&T, my internet service provider, and they quickly sent out a technician. When that technician arrived... He told me what he was going to do, and he told me that it would take probably just an hour or so. 
He began the job, and during that time, he needed my help from time to time. I had to show him where certain rooms were, where certain electrical panels were. I had to move some furniture around for him. I had to show him where the existing wires were and so forth. After an hour and a half of him tinkering in my home, I started to wonder when he would finish and leave. I wanted my family to be able to get on with our lives. Pretty soon, the technician did finish the job. I thanked him for his help, but quite honestly, I was very happy to see him leave. Don't get me wrong, I was quite happy when he came because I had a problem, and he came to help me fix that problem. Once he fixed it, though, I was happy to see him leave. And looking back, I noticed that this is how I've felt about many different service providers who've come to my home over the years, whether plumbers, electricians, garage door repairmen, landscapers, or others. I'm happy when they come. I'm happy when they leave. And I'm happy they don't stay for too long because I want to get on with my life. This may be how you treat Christ. If you're a Christian, at some point in your life, you recognize that you had a problem, a sin problem. You then invited Christ to come into your life to be your savior. He fixed your sin problem by dying on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. Now, instead of hell, you're going to heaven. Now, what? At this point, most Christians view Christ somewhat like how I viewed that AT&T technician. Jesus Thanks for coming and fixing my sin problem. Now that you have, please leave so I can get on with my life. If that's how you think, whether explicitly or implicitly, then the biblical commands to holiness will never make sense to you and will always be uncomfortable for you. Such commands will feel to you like a plumber, electrician, or internet repairman who comes to your home and never leaves, an unwelcome addition to your life. But if you understand that Christ doesn't come as a technician, but instead as Lord for the rest of your life, then the commands to holiness make complete sense. Christ coming into your life is more similar to marriage. Once he comes, he never leaves. If anything, your relationship with Christ is even more permanent than marriage because marriage ends when either you or your spouse dies, but Christ will be your Lord even into all eternity. Once you understand holiness, then many other dimensions of the Bible's message begin to make a whole lot of sense, including its commands to flee temptation rather than to try to dabble in it to be modest in how you dress, to be separate and distinct from the world, to limit and give up your freedoms rather than to recklessly exercise and flaunt them. In this area of behavior, the mature Christian asks, is it holy? While the immature Christian asks, is it okay? Or what's wrong with blank? The non-Christian world asks those same questions, but they will never ask, Is it holy? Do you ever ask that question? You've seen that one basic assumption for Christian living is holiness. Let's see a second basic assumption now. And for this, turn with me to Romans 6. This is the passage that Mark helpfully read for us earlier. Romans chapter 6. 
Romans 6, and I'll reread to you just a few portions beginning in verse 16. Starting in verse 16 here. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Middle of verse 19 now. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. If you're following along in your Bible, you can keep your finger there here in Romans 6, while you turn now over to Romans 16. Let me read to you just verses 17 and 18 there in Romans 16. Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. If you look closely through these two passages, you'll notice how frequently that word slave occurs. In these passages, you learn that you're one of two types of slave. You can be a slave of bad things or a slave of good things. To be specific, you can be a slave of things like sin, impurity, lawlessness, and your own appetite. Or you can be a slave of things like obedience, righteousness, God, and Jesus Christ. The category on the left of that slide is a non-Christian. And a category, the category on the right is a Christian. At the bottom of each list, you can see that being a non-Christian leads to eternal death, but being a Christian leads to eternal life. Everyone is one of these two types of slave. There is no third category. Which of these two types of slave are you? By default, everyone starts off as the slave on the left. That leads to death, though, and so, of course, you want to become the slave on the right. But how do you go from being a slave of sin to being a slave of obedience? You undergo that transformation by receiving the gospel. And in so doing, you become a Christian. You're freed from sin. You escape from that column on the left, and you become a slave of obedience there on the right. This brings you to the second basic assumption for Christian living, and that is enslavement to Christ. Enslavement to Christ. If you're a Christian, the Bible says that you are a slave of Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. About 20 years ago, I was discipling a guy who we'll call John. Because that was his name. John had grown up in church his entire life and had never been thoroughly taught the scriptures despite that. One day, he and I were talking about these two passages in Romans that you just looked at, and I wasn't sure whether he was getting it, since he had that blank stare on his face. 
Ever since then, I've become quite comfortable and accustomed to seeing the blank stare. A few days later, John was updating me on his recent life, and I was surprised to hear that he had made some decisions to stop using his his time in ways that he now viewed as a waste of time. I was surprised, because I knew that John very much enjoyed those activities that he was now choosing to give up. I said to him, John, I'm encouraged that you made those decisions, but I'm also pretty surprised. Out of curiosity, why did you choose to give up those activities? And in response, John said to me, Amos, I am a slave of Christ. I don't have any rights. And I believe that this is what a slave of Christ would do and should do. When I heard John say that, I realized, this guy gets it. This guy gets it. If you understand that you are a slave of Christ and you embrace that truth enthusiastically, then the Bible's instructions regarding how you're to live your life make complete sense and are fairly easy to accept. If you don't understand that, though, then Christian living and so much of the Bible will constantly confuse you, and you will never know the joy of being fully surrendered to Christ. If you're in that category, you will always hold your pastors and elders at arm's length. You will always feel uncomfortable in the presence of godly Christians. You will never know the joy of truly living a free and wonderful relationship with Christ, but instead are always trying to hide aspects of your life from him. It is unfortunate, but this identity of being a slave of Christ is widely rejected. How often do you ever hear of someone refer to themselves as a slave of Christ? How often do you ever think of yourself as a slave of Christ? One reason the Bible's teaching on your enslavement to Christ is so widely rejected in this country has to do with the history of slavery in the United States. That dark chapter of American history taught us that slavery is evil, bad, and to be condemned and to be avoided at all costs. That's true of American slavery because in that context, the masters were human beings and hence very, very imperfect and fallen masters. No human being should ever be owned by another fallen human being. But your enslavement to Christ is nothing like that. Christ is not an evil and fallen human being. He's absolutely and completely good and perfect. He was involved in your very creation and hence has already owned you from the very get-go. And then beyond that, he also redeemed you and hence now owns you at least twice over. Another reason the Bible's teaching on your enslavement to Christ is so widely rejected has to do with today's emphasis on freedoms. The idea that you and your freedom should ever be limited in any way is so horribly repulsive to so many people. Because of this, many Christians have convinced themselves that they've created a third path to Christian living. In this third path, you intellectually receive the gospel, view yourself as being freed from sin, but more or less continue living just like before and just like the world. You fit in with the worldly people around you. You do what they do. You go where they go. You live the way they live. You act the way they act. You behave the way they behave and so on. 
On a random note, one of the aspects that we constantly find ourselves ministering to at New Life, probably because of our demographic, has to do with wedding planning. When it comes to wedding planning, our people, understandably, default to the same worldly patterns of how to plan a wedding as the world. And we have to to constantly remind them, you're not a non-Christian. You are planning a worship service. And that affects all these details. Not just in the wedding ceremony, but I would point out also in the reception. And I emphasize that to them because oftentimes it seems like Christians will sometimes, only sometimes, plan a very reverent wedding ceremony. And then that just all goes out the window when it comes to the reception. And you think to yourself, what happened here? Did you stop being a Christian between the ceremony and the reception? Okay, pardon me for meddling. I will come back here. The problem with this third path is that the Bible doesn't recognize its existence. It is a deceptive illusion. You can see here in Romans, there is no third path. If you're in this third path of so-called complete freedom as a Christian, in reality, at best, you're a rebellious and bad slave, or at worst, you're just a self-deceived and you're still a non-believer and a slave to sin, all the while thinking that you're a believer on the way to eternal life. When someone tells you that as a Christian, you should do this or that, since the Bible says this or that, if you don't embrace your enslavement to Christ, you will get bent out of shape and offended and might accuse the other person of being legalistic. When you see others who are living as a slave of Christ, that makes you uncomfortable since it threatens your sense of freedom and validation. If you're in the so-called third path, Perhaps you like to talk about being free in Christ. You probably don't like to talk about being a slave of Christ. If you don't view yourself as a slave of Christ, you'll instead treat Christ like a fellow citizen who has to win your collaboration and cooperation through perks, gifts, or benefits offered. If you view yourself as being completely free, you behave completely differently than you would if you viewed yourself first and foremost as a slave of Christ. Whenever I teach this passage of the Bible, the objection I always get has to do with freedom. People will say, but we are free in Christ. This, friends, is a huge misunderstanding. Look again here at Romans 6, verse 18. There Paul says, having been freed from sin, yes, you became slaves of righteousness. And look also at verse 22 here. Having been freed from sin, yes, And enslaved to God. The freedom you have in Christ is a freedom from sin. From being in that column on the left. So that now you are a slave of Christ. It is not a complete freedom. No one is completely free. Everyone is a slave of some sort. Either of sin or of Christ. Which of the two are you? Having said all of this, make sure you understand what we are saying and what we are not saying. We are not saying that a slave of Christ will never sin. On this side of heaven, we will all continue to fail and sin. The difference, though, between a slave of Christ and a slave of sin can be described in at least three words. Target, pattern, and reaction. What is the target that you're aiming at? A slave of Christ is aiming at a completely different target 
than a slave of sin. True, the slave of Christ often doesn't hit the bullseye, but he's at least aiming for the right target of godliness and perfection. And that makes a complete difference. Second, what is your pattern of life? The pattern of life of a slave of Christ is different from the pattern of life of someone who's a slave of sin. For the slave of Christ, holiness is the pattern. And sin is the exception. But for the slave of sin, sin is the pattern, not the exception. Lastly, what is your reaction when you're told that you're supposed to live as a slave of Christ? The slave of Christ says, of course, amen. Thank you for reminding me. But the slave of sin gets offended and bent out of shape. You've seen so far that two basic assumptions for Christian living are holiness and enslavement to Christ. Let's look now at a third and last basic assumption for Christian living. And for this, turn with me to our last passage for today, and that would be Titus 2. Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. There, Paul writes in Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the Lord of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and approve, reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here in this passage, you can see that the topic is the grace of God. Right there at the beginning of verse 11. And then you read that the grace of God does two things. It brings salvation... And it instructs us. Notice how you receive the salvation. You are not saved by your own works. You don't bring salvation to yourself. You're saved by God's grace. He brings salvation to you. This is not of your own doing. It's God's. And you claim the salvation by receiving Christ as your Savior. If you have received Christ as your Savior, then this next part is for you. Verse 12 tells you that the grace of God instructs you. Those of you who are Christians. And what is this instruction about? Verse 12 tells you that the instruction is how you are to live as a Christian in this present age. In other words, this is about Christian living. And the passage tells you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And then verse 14 tells you that the same grace of God instructs you to live a life of purity and zeal for good deeds. Putting this all together, you see that the grace of God is an exhortation to holiness. This brings you to the third and last assumption for Christian living, and that is that grace mandates holiness. Grace mandates holiness. Around 15 years ago, my mother and her siblings, my aunts and uncles, published a book together in memory of their father, my grandfather. This grandfather of mine passed away right before I was born, and so I never knew him. 
and I had never known much about him besides little snippets that my mother and my aunts and uncles would mention from time to time. When I read that book they published, though, I learned a lot about my grandfather, and I was overwhelmed by what I learned. At least on paper, there was absolutely nothing impressive about my grandfather. He was poorly educated. He had no special skills. If he were to put together a resume, first of all, that would have been a struggle because of issues with literacy, but it would have also just been a long list of odd jobs that were oriented around manual labor. On the other hand, as I read that book about him, I concluded that my, father was an, my grandfather was an extremely great man. I learned about his impressive character and how much he suffered and sacrificed to support his family of six children, giving all of them the opportunity to become highly educated and eventually successful. When I finished reading that book, I thought to myself, wow, I never knew my grandfather was an extremely great man. And that means that I'm a great man's grandson. I have to reflect that in how I live. I can't waste my life. I need to be ambitious and honor my grandfather's past sacrifices. And I can honestly say that that realization has definitely changed the course of my life at certain key junctures. I remember certain key moments of my life where I was faced with options of triviality but fun or sacrifice and maturity but clearly what would be the wise and right choice. And there definitely were several times when I thought to myself, if I were no one, and if I had nothing to live up to, I would choose this. But my grandfather was a specific kind of man, and I'm that man's grandson, and I need to do this. As helpful as my grandfather's legacy may have been to me, a far, far greater legacy benefits you and me as believers, and that, of course, would be the grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation to all men. What happens when you understand that grace correctly? The Bible says that it propels you to holiness. It propels you to holiness. You can always easily identify someone who misunderstands God's grace. If you misunderstand the grace of God, you will not think that grace mandates holiness. Instead, you will think that grace minimizes or even negates the importance of holiness in the Christian life. Perhaps you say or think things like, we don't need to be too concerned about holiness because we're under grace. When someone tells you that you should live out holiness in some area of your life, you might think or say, but we're under grace, not law. As if the grace of God ever justifies sin or reckless living. It does not. This passage makes clear that the grace of God instead mandates holiness. People have misunderstood God's grace for as long as the gospel has been around. In Romans 6, at the beginning of that chapter, Paul has to deal with this same problem. People back then apparently were saying that because of God's grace, we can sin without being too concerned about it. And in response, Paul says there, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. And yet, 
Myriads of Christians today claim exactly that. That the grace of God allows them to be unconcerned about holiness and obedience to Christ. That isn't the grace of God. Whatever it is that they understand, it is not the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So, what assumptions have you been carrying with you about how you should live? Today, you've seen that three basic assumptions for Christian living are holiness, enslavement to Christ, and that grace mandates holiness. In Matthew 11, Jesus famously says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice that following Jesus does involve a yoke and burden. But it's an easy yoke and a light burden compared to any other option. And this is why those who embrace holiness, enslavement to Christ, and that grace mandates holiness, will find that the Christian life is light and easy. Please pray with me. Our gracious Father in heaven, we worship you, we acknowledge that you are the one who created us, who owns us, who redeemed us. We really do owe you everything, and yet so often we give you nothing. We thank you for your word and how it so comprehensively and powerfully addresses the realities in which we live. It confronts the assumptions that we carry in our heart, in our mind. It also gives us hope and a clear path to pleasing you. It teaches us how we can live this life so that it counts for eternity, so that we don't squander this life. Father, would you minister to us in our assumptions regarding how we are to live and our significance and identity here on this planet? Would you teach us to take up our cross, to be willing to leave all to follow you, even if we are to be destitute, despised, or forsaken in this lifetime, you are all, can be, and will be. Even if we have to put to death every ambition that we have in this lifetime, with you, we have everything. We are rich. We are wealthy. What more do we need? We anticipate spending eternity in heaven with you. And we thank you so much for that, Father. Would you deeply impress the truths that we've heard today into our hearts? Where there is a lack of conviction, we ask that you would give that conviction. Where there is conviction, we pray that you would propel us into action, into transformation, into a heart, mind, and behavior that reflects your character, that we would love you so much more completely. Thank you so much, Father. You are holy, and we shall be holy. In your son's precious name we pray.